All right. Well, we're back in the book of Romans. We're in lesson 17, an introduction to sanctification, the third section of the book of Romans. Uh, I want to read this quote by Jonathan Edwards from his book, Religious Affections. I don't usually begin with quotes from others, but I think it will set the tone of this morning. There is no question whatsoever that is of greater importance to mankind and what is more concerns every individual person to be well resolved in than this. What are the distinguishing qualifications of those who are in favor with God and entitled to his eternal rewards? Or, which comes to the same thing, what is the nature of true religion? And wherein do lie the distinguishing notes of that virtue and holiness that is acceptable in the sight of God? But though it be of such importance, and though we have clear and abundant light in the word of God to direct us in this matter, yet there is no one point wherein professing Christians do more differ from one another. It would be endless to reckon up the variety of opinions in this point that divide the Christian world, making manifest the truth of that declaration of our Savior, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Now, Jonathan Edwards is dealing here in his book on religious affections with two things. He's dealing with true religion. How does someone know they're saved is part of the conversation. But he's also dealing with the life of a Christian that is How do you know that what you're doing is pleasing the Lord? Are the affections alive, or is it only a mental game that you're playing in your religion? Guys, as a pastor of the last 38 years of my life, I don't know of any issue that is more confusing to Christians than how to be sanctified. Um, It is amazing in the differences, which we're going to talk about today, but the views of sanctification... Uh, you could go to almost any kind of church and hear a completely different view on what is it like to be spiritual? What does it mean to grow? What do you have to do to grow? What do you have to do to get more spiritual? What do you have to do to have an encounter with God? There are so many books, there's so many theories on this among Christians that it is massively confusing. Depends on what seminar you go to, what book you read, who you listen to, and it's not isolated to this kind of a thing. Hope Bible Church has it right. (laughs) All other churches are evil. We pretty much know that. But even among ourselves, I would say even this morning, we are going to have differing views of what it means to be spiritual. For some people, they will often say, it's what you believe that makes you spiritual. The more you believe right doctrine, the more you have doctrine clarified, the more spiritual you are. Some people are saying, no, no, no. It's not what you get in your mind. It's the affections. It's what you experience. Oh, yeah. Jump a pew. Rub jello on yourself. Hold snakes. Become a Raiders fan. 
Or the will. It's what you choose. Choose. It's doing the right stuff. I have found uh, over the years that Christians are in camps about this. The mind Christians tend to go to Presbyterian churches. We've got this doctrine thing down. And you're not spiritual unless you're kind of where we are doctrinally. Because we're all about doctrine. The will churches, we do the right things. We have our list and we do them all. Welcome to being a Baptist. (laughs) And the affection churches, welcome to being a charismatic. Now those are caricatures. But Christians tend in denominations and in churches to be one of those as opposed to or more than other churches. Now, that doesn't mean that in a Presbyterian church nobody loves Jesus. And it doesn't mean in a charismatic church nobody has a mind. But it does mean there's a tendency in that direction of those type of things. What I find is that that's an imbalance because Jesus said that the Great Commission and the Great Commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That is, in every aspect of us, is in balance in knowing and loving Jesus. You can't love God properly without your mind. You are to be renewed in your mind, right? You can't love God properly without your affections. I mean, Jonathan Edwards' book on religious affections, but unless there's a true love from God that comes from the heart, you're just a Pharisee, right? With your lips, you worship me, but with your heart, you're far from me. And if you don't act on any of the stuff you believe, right, or love, and your life doesn't conform in any way, and you don't make choices for moral things, then your religion is vain, right? So that is the typical problem, is we tend to go to the things that we like the most and we're most comfortable with. Uh, We tend, in my estimation... Uh, to be the guy or gal who's like, hey, I love reading, I love theology, I love books, I feel comfortable, I go to seminars, I'm in a teaching church. Man, it's awesome. But it is possible in that church environment to lose your first love. Right? And so if you look at the seven churches of Revelation, you can find some of the damaging effects of this type of thing where they go in one direction over another. And they either lose their first love or they lose their mind or they allow things and practices in their church in which it's more satanic worship, or it's more whatever, than it is a worship of God. Now, just for a quickie, uh, I do this occasionally, but a quickie. How many of you are from Presbyterian or Episcopalian churches? That was your background. All right? All right? The only real Christian in the room? All right. <laughs> Um, how many of you are from Baptist backgrounds at all? Right? Okay. All right. One day we'll go through the book of Galatians. You'll be free. All right. And then how many of you are from either charismatic or holiness or something like that? Okay. Those are a little bit of a blend. Now, there's other ways. We've said Catholic. Some of us grew up Catholic. That kind of thing. Friends, among Christians, as I said, in this room, in our church, And among denominations, there's various ways of looking at what is God's part and what is my part in sanctification. 
what part does God do to make me spiritual? And what part do I have to do? There's a bandwidth in this whole conversation of some people very much are like, let go and let God. God does all the sanctifying. I just need to get in tune and get neutral and become a conduit through which God's going to do the sanctifying. And the more I yield to that, says that theory and says that view, the more yield that I am over here, God is going to do more through me. And I can't do anything because I'm carnal, but God is spiritual. And I just have to give myself to God, and that's how he makes me holy. Boop, boop, boop. On the other end, kind of following those other ones is, hey man, that's all very nice. Read your Bible, pray, do all these things Scripture says, and pretty much spirituality is on you. God supplied all the things. You've got to do all this, and God will make you grow. And then, of course, there's people in between. I have been confused in my Christian life in the past. And I have struggled with those different adaptations. I've been in those different movements. I've attended churches that are more affection churches, more mind churches, more will churches. I went to a college that was a Baptist college. I did my W, you know. And so today, we are starting to look at Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, where Paul is telling us what God's plan is for our sanctification. So I'm inviting you to go along. Let's do it. Okay, on page one, I need to do a quick review. Some of you have ridden the whole bus. Some of you are just here. But whenever we start a new section of the book, we want to talk about that. So the structure of the book that we've been through so far in Romans as Number one is sin, salvation, and sanctification. Chapters 1 to 3 talks about justification is needed. Everyone's a sinner. No one can save themselves. They all need to be saved. Then salvation that we looked at, chapter 3 to 5, justification's root, the legal righteousness by grace through faith. And then today we begin justification's fruit, a lifestyle of righteousness. Uh, Salvation that we just looked at, has to do with justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, Justification is freedom from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is freedom from the power of sin. And our future glorification in Romans 8 is freedom from the presence of sin. In sanctification, we need to know this. That chapter 6, 7, and 8, I would outline this way. Chapter 6 to 7, 6 is we need to be sanctified. Amen. B, we can't be sanctified. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, but yes, we can. That's when Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I do, the confusion we need to work through. And then finally in Romans 8, we will be sanctified. God is going to do this. So here are Paul's big questions that he asks in chapter 6, 7, and 8. In chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Are we sanctified the same way we were saved? Is it all an act of God by which we just believe? Or is there some other means of sanctification? B, he asks in Romans 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? We're free from the law. But what is the role of the law in the Christian's life, if any? And then see, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All right.
in chapter 6 and 7, Paul, just again by way of introduction, and then we'll raise our head and get into more matters. We need to be sanctified. It's illustrated by three things. An illustration of baptism. You have been baptized into Christ. Okay? Secondly, it's illustrated by slavery. Chapter 6, 15 to 23. We used to be slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness, Paul says. And then thirdly, he gives an illustration of marriage and death. When we were married to the law and we were married to sin, that was one thing. But there has been a death and we are now freed and married to Christ. And that has changed everything. Really, Paul is saying it's all about identity, right? Our union with Christ makes all the difference in our new identity in Christ. And then finally, at the bottom of page one, we can't be sanctified. Oh, yeah, we can. And I want to say the law is not the problem. We're the problem. <laughs> and that's what Paul's going to get to. Okay, that's a long introduction, but let's jump in. So today is an introduction to the topic of sanctification. Woohoo! We always start with a quiz then. All right, here's what I want you to do. Take a minute. All right, so question one under the justification. We just did justification together the last uh, six or eight weeks. And so take a look and then answer question one by circling whatever ones are, one of the followings is not true of justification. And then in chapter, verse, <laughs> verses two, in questions two to eight, true or false, okay? I'm going to give you a minute to do that quietly and we'll jump back in. Permanent record for sure. <laughs> the person who gets the highest score ends up preaching today instead of me, which... <clears throat> Oh, no, do all eight of the questions, please. Yeah. No, I meant... Oh, just, 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 just justification. Yeah, just justification. When I was a child and we did questionnaires like this, when you were done, you put your head on the table. Remember that? I was, was in 12th grade, Ellen. That's right. That's right. It's actually in college. It was scary. All right, let's do this. We're going to do the justification quiz. If you haven't finished it, that's okay. You can act smart when you circle the right answer. All right. Question one is, which one of the following is not true of justification? It's an instantaneous legal act of God. It means that God thinks of our sins as forgiven. It means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and we are declared to be righteous in his sight. It means that God changes us internally and makes us holy within. Which is not part of justification? D, that is correct. That is what sanctification is about, right? All right, very good. Some of you guys are like theologians. Or two, justification precedes faith. False. Right, you're only justified after you believe. You're not justified, then you believe. All right, three, justification is God's response to our faith. True. Don't go too far if you're Calvinist. You think, oh, response, but yeah, it's true. Four, the word justify means to declare righteous in regard to salvation. True. I love how when, you know, I've been there. I've been on that side of it where you're like, I think. <laughs> True. All right, five. Justification is forensic, meaning it has to do with legal proceedings. True. It's a courtroom situation like Paul built. Six. Justification includes both forgiveness of past sins and imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Amen. True. 
7. Christ's righteousness imputed to us means that God thinks of or regards Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. True. And finally, Protestants believe in imputed righteousness, while Roman Catholics believe in infused righteousness. True. We didn't use those terms a lot. I mean, we didn't use infused a lot. But the idea that uh, Protestants believe that it's an accounting thing, Catholics believe like God took a big syringe and put righteous juice in you, and then you work towards your own salvation with the gift of righteousness, but you earn your own merits. It's like you got a lot of coins went into the arcade, but you've got to play, as, as opposed to God imputes righteousness to you. Yes, ma'am? In Roman Catholicism? Um, yeah, great question. Does justification precede faith in Roman Catholicism? No. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's you're in a state of grace, you know, as an infant and you're baptized, etc. But your justification can be lost, uh, and it, so without doing the whole Roman Catholic thing that I've done before, yeah, the answer is sort of maybe, yeah. And I was going to ask, going back to your drawing, mm-hmm. does the Roman Catholicism come in the mind, the will, or the affections? That's uh, a combo platter. Depends on who, yeah, you know. Um, if you're Thomas Aquinas, it's the mind. If you're Thomas Akempis, it's a combo platter. Yeah. I mean, what I mean is, you, you have Catholic theologians, you have Catholic experientialists who um, uh, who would follow more of a uh, experiential, spiritual formation package, and then you have moralist Catholics. So, you know, all religion has all three. You know, that's good. It's a good question. All right, we're going to do sanctification. Let's do that one quick. I've used up a little bit of time here, so let's do that. Let's do the sanctification quiz, please. Same kind of questions. And I'll wait a minute and let you guys do them. Man, this is the best day of my life. All right, let's do this. Sanctification quiz. Which one of the following is not true of sanctification? It's a progressive work of God. It's a work in which God and man cooperate. It's the same in all Christians, or it's greater in some than in others. C, that's right. It's not the same in all Christians. Not all of us can be Steve Kirshner. (laughs) Number two, sanctification is a legal standing before God. False, that's right. It's it's a continuing growth thing. Three, sanctification begins at water baptism. False. False. Sanctification has three stages. Past, present, and future, right? Uh, Right, right. Past, present, and future. You, and we, it is true, although, yeah, because sanctification is a growth thing. Yeah. Though you may have said, does it have three or seven? Or We'll talk about those. All right. Um, number five, the initial stage or step of sanctification involves a definite break from the ruling power and love of sin. That's a confusing question, but the answer is yes. That is, when you get saved, you're justified. No longer. There should be a break with sin not that you stop sinning, but there's a definite change in who the Lord of the house is, and the life begins to transform. That is what Romans 6 is going to give us as a backdrop. Number six, it is possible to become perfect or sinless in this life. Oh. Oh, well, there goes my hope. That was my, that was my New Year's resolution, too, and I was kind of bummed about that. All right, Sanctification will not be entirely completed until the Lord returns and we receive new resurrection bodies. True. And our, our role in sanctification is both passive and active. True. True. Spirit works and we work. Very good. All right. So by way of introduction today, 
I'm simply going to go through uh, what is sanctification and some of the answers to the question and then prepare us for next week's expositing of Romans 6. So an introduction to sanctification. Justification, sanctification, and the order of salvation. You recall this particular picture, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And namely, God's election leads to the atoning work of Christ, which led to our calling from God, both external call of the gospel and the call of the Spirit to draw us, and then a regeneration is a work of God by which he causes conversion, that is, faith and repentance are twin fruits of regeneration. And from that, then, God justifies us because we have now believed what Christ has done for us. And then the work of sanctification begins in which God and man cooperate in the present. And then glorification will be that time when in the future we will be completely sanctified and set apart. Uh, J.C. Ryle says, In justification, our own works have no place at all. And simple faith in Christ is the one thing that's needful. In sanctification, our own works are of vast importance. And God bids us fight and watch and pray and strive and take pains and labor. So what's the meaning of sanctification? If you're visiting today, this is not our norm. (laughs) We typically go through the text verse by verse, as you know. But uh, we do this in each of the sections to give a backdrop. So number one, the theological definition. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. I think it's a good definition. Uh, Emory Bancroft says, Sanctification in its general sense is the separation and dedication of a person or object to and for God to belong wholly to him and to be used for his glory. So what then is sanctification? The word basically means to set apart, as we all know. The words holy and sanctify have the same root word or root meaning. Days and seasons were sanctified in Genesis. Places were sanctified. The tabernacle was sanctified. The first uh, born of man and beast was sanctified to God. And Israel was sanctified to the Lord. So sanctification has three aspects or stages. Past, present, and future. What do we mean? Past sanctification, 1 Corinthians 6. And this is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were set apart for God positionally. But then we are all in the present being sanctified as believers. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And then future sanctification is pictured for us in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church, yet future, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. On the left side there, um, I've given two word pictures, the national park and the farmer. Those are my favorite basic pictures of what sanctification looks like. And so the National Park, remember, and I may have mentioned it before, but my favorite National Park is Yosemite. Yes. Yosemite. Yosemite Sam always comes to mind. I had a, one of those childhoods. But the idea of a National Park being holy or set apart is pretty simple. At some point, 
the government determines that there will be a piece of land that is set apart for a particular purpose that it had not been set before. That would be positional sanctification. It is set apart for the purpose of that. But when Yosemite was set apart, it didn't have some of the infrastructure inside of it that would allow people to come and visit and enjoy Yosemite. You would have had to have hiked in like uh, John Muir or somebody like that, and which would have been wonderful, but most people couldn't have visited it. And so there's an infrastructure that's set up within the park, and that is there's cabins, and there's trails that have been helped, and there's a, a, a ranger station, and there's roads that go into Yosemite that didn't exist before. This is what you would call as that middle section of sanctification. It was set apart, but now it's being set apart so that it can be enjoyed and used. And that's what sanctification looks like. We're set apart to God, but then our whole life becomes sanctifying work that God begins to use. And then finally, there is no perfect, there's no perfect glorification of a national park. Okay? It does not reach the zenith from which it cannot return. But if God were to make Yosemite, and it could not ever be changed, then you would have that. But the closest you get is to the laws and decrees that make Yosemite set apart in perpetuity. It is in perpetuity a national park, not to be reverted in any way. And so that's the idea of sanctification. And so when you go to a place like Yosemite or Yellowstone or any other national park, you get to enjoy the fruits of that ongoing labor. And then the farmer. I think we all know what the farmer illustration is in Scripture. Sanctification is a work of the farmer, uh, if you will. Farming is a work of the farmer, but also he's reliant. The farmer cultivates his ground, he plants, he waters, he trusts. And at the end of the day, you can't control the sun, you can't control the wind, you can't control other elements, unless you have a greenhouse to do all of this in. And so the, the person who's the farmer is trusting and working. Uh, farmers don't stay in their house and say, I'm sure God's going to grow my plants for me without doing all of that work. But if you do all that work, it's no guarantee that the plants are going to grow. It's ultimately left up to the Lord. And so those two pictures seem to me to be a good balance of what the idea of sanctification looks like. I'm so glad you guys are back. Man, I was in here every day waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> My drawings are improving, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> Steve, you're the man. Okay, a couple words about sanctification and the, the work of the Lord in sanctification. Uh, God's work in sanctification. Let's start there on page 4. The Father is involved in the ministry of sanctification. In John 15, he's the gardener. You know the illustration in John 15. He's the gardener. The Son is involved in the ministry of sanctification in John 15. He's the true vine. And his blood is the basis of sanctification. It is his purpose for the church that we be sanctified. And then the Holy Spirit is involved in the ministry of sanctification. He's the direct agent. He's the guy making it happen. He is transforming us into the image of Christ. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He gives us the power to overcome sin, Romans 8. And if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. 
But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And then he produces fruit through us. Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance against which there is no law. Here's a few things that I thought of that you cannot do without the Holy Spirit. It's kind of an important list. And as I went through, and you can look up the scriptures, I think you'd be very delighted. But you cannot be regenerated without the Holy Spirit. He makes us live. That's kind of a big deal. You can't have assurance without the Holy Spirit. He's the one who assures us that we are children of God. You can't be fruitful without the Holy Spirit. You can't understand the scriptures without the Holy Spirit. You can't pray properly without the Holy Spirit. You can mumble words, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. You can't serve God without the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. He gives spiritual gifts. And you can't witness without the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. When the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, then they went out and they were witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria. Guys, we are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit. That is the agent of sanctification. And the more we know about Him, the more yielded we are to Him, the more that the more the enjoyableness. Now, God's going to sanctify people whether you get involved or not. Sanctification does have a sovereign side. God is sanctifying people at the rate and in the way that He means. But in the mystery of it, we also have to join Him in the adventure. But have you ever noticed in your Christian life... Oh, wait, I need to ask a question. How many of you know what Star Trek is, right? No. Okay. Do you know how in Star Trek they can take their spaceships and they can hyperspace them? Warp speed, right. So they can go from one place, do, 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 to, and they end up like in a delicate intestine in another world, right? Like, okay. Hold in there for a minute. Sometimes, and I think you'll see this in your own Christian life, you're just tooling along in your Christian life. Man, you're reading your Bible some, you're praying, you go to church, and but growth is really slow, and you're in a season of kind of like whatever. And then God will take you through a few months or a whatever tunnel where it's like you get hyperspaced to a different place in your spiritual life. And by that I don't mean you got to a plane no Christian ever went to. <laughs> we will go where no man has ever gone before. But rather, God takes you through a season that delight to your soul, the enjoyment of his presence, it just inexplicably, God will just take you there because he loves you. And it had nothing to do with how faithful you were reading your Bible. Why? Because God loves us. He knows we're flesh. He knows we're morons. And he knows in this life, we're never going to have it all together. So if it's completely up to us, we're never going to get there. But God sometimes delights us and works in us to have us enjoy Him at times. But have you also noticed what Spurgeon noticed? And that is Spurgeon talks about apparent desertion. That there tends to be also in life times in which the question is, where is God? Not just because of moral issues or God failed me. That's not the issue. But where is God's presence? Where is that delight I had? Where is that sense of the joy of my salvation that Scripture talks about? What happened to that? And guys, we go through seasons as Christians 
where you can be dry, where it can be dried up and you're like, but I'm doing all the stuff. Read my Bible, I was in prayer. I even went to Dave's class. <laughs> I, mean, I was willing to do anything. Right? <laughs> and yet you're in a dry season. And now you're in Psalm 1. In its season, that tree will bear fruit. You might be in John 15 that God prunes you back. And there's no apparent growth. You don't see fruit. You're in a time where if this is what I am, I'm not even sure I'm a believer. And God is just pruning you back to do a work in you that's deeper and more rich than what had been there before. And so that is the beauty of a little bit of a scary place to be in sanctification. But you can't take a snapshot constantly and say, that's where I'm at, that's where I'm at. It's like taking pictures of a plant growing every single day. Some plants grow really fast, some don't. Yeah, Jose. Yeah, no, what's up, bro? So, if assurance is a gift of the Holy Spirit, can it be said that if we lose the Holy Spirit, we'll lose our assurance? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. The question is, if the Holy Spirit gives assurance, He's the one who gives us assurance, and we, we grieve the Holy Spirit, or we quench the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, is it not possible that our assurance will go down? Absolutely. Assurance... Insurance never changes, right? But assurance does. And I think I gave an illustration some time ago, but on that point, uh, you have to talk to your agent, your insurance agent, and you have to read the policy pretty continuously to know whether you're covered. And your assurance goes up and down as to whether, you know what I mean? Right, right. And did I pay my premium is a question. When people doubt their salvations, their assurance goes way down. You go, well, that's the same thing. Uh, It's a combo platter. When you doubt the facts of the gospel or whether you received it or whatever, your personal insurance is going to go down because you don't think your, pay, your premium is paid. They're like, I think I'm going to get booted. You know, what's interesting about having Geico? Okay. <laughs> anybody, anybody else have Geico auto insurance? Okay. So here's my deal with Geico, and then I'll get off it. Geico is the most scary agency I ever dealt with as far as car auto insurance. So you're, you're cruising along and you like pay, like I've had it for like 15 years, whatever, and you're paying every month, blah, blah, blah. You get like 12 seconds where you didn't pay it. Yeah. You're on a trip. You don't just get a reminder. You get a, you bum, we're dropping you, and we've sent people to your house to kill you. It's kind of like that. So Death threats. <laughs> Some people are worried about me. Okay, we're on page five then. We're on page five. So here are some major points on sanctification which I would like to leave you with in preparation for next week. And here we go. Number one, in relation to justification, we're dead to God and alive to sin. But in relation to sanctification, we are alive to God and dead to sin. That's what Paul is going to talk about in Romans 6. Number two, the idea of death and life in these passages refers to subjective inner experiences or practices, but the positional relationship to the object in view. You're like, what does that mean? Stay with me. Number three, we must not see chapter 6 as teaching the exchanged life, the normal Christian life, watchman knee, or the formula, but rather as simply the introduction to the subject of sanctification, which Paul addresses more fully. No reckon, yield, and obey are not the quote-unquote method of sanctification, but rather important aspects of a much larger theology laid out by Paul. 
I know that for some. Some of you are like, I don't even know what all that means. And some of you are like, I know exactly what you mean because there's formulaic writings of Christians over the last 150 years which suggest to us that chapter 6 of Romans is a formula of sorts that if you know, reckon, yield, and obey, that is the formula for specific sanctification. And it usually is in the Keswick movement and others, and you're like, what? And we'll talk more about that next week. Number five, we need to keep in mind that the nature of language and in particular, the use of verbs in the New Testament. Some of you are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to be doing language? <laughs> yes. There are indicative moods. A mood of certainty or actuality. This thing is true. Jesus is God. A subjunctive mood of probability. An optative mood of possible. And then an imperative mood of command. What we will talk about is the distinction in Romans 6, 7, and 8, whether things are commands or they're just stating facts or they're giving possibilities, and that's going to be important. Number six, in justification, the imperative is to believe and trust in the finished work of Christ. In sanctification, the imperative is both to trust and to believe. I'm sorry, believe and trust in justification's results and to obey. This is beautifully summed up in the title of the old hymn, Trust and obey. So number seven, in short, justification is monergistic. God does all the work. Sanctification is synergistic. God and man are co-laborers. Sanctification has three aspects, right? Positional, progressive, and ultimate. And so let's define the terms and then move on. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives, as we read before. Page 6. You're like, yes! Drawings! Pictures! Color! This is the best day ever! Alright. Let's talk about sanctification views. Now, I would do well to have them up on the whiteboard, but I'm simply going to go one at a time. The Wesleyan view of sanctification. John Wesley, the Methodist view. There's certain movements within Wesleyanism. Start at the bottom left and move up to the right. You're an unbeliever, but then justification happens because you believed. Now you're up above the justification line, but you're going to turn to the right because you go through a defeating struggle with sin. This is a picture of how they view the Christian life. Get saved, and then you're just blah, blah, blah Christian. Well, the blah, blah, blah Christian needs a complete surrender to go to the next level. That's what they would view. At some point, there's going to be a crisis experience that's going to take you up there. And when you've completely surrendered... Now you go through the eradication of the sin nature. That's what I did last weekend while we were off on break. It was awesome. So I don't have a sin nature anymore. I mean, it's great. It's perfect. Now you can live, you can live according to the new man, and you notice that last arrow goes up, and now you're going to live like the new man. The point is, in Wesleyanism, they believe 
that you can get to a point where you don't ever sin again. <coughs> it's not true. Wait, what? <laughs> no, here's, what I would, here's what I would say if a man were to come to me, a married man who's in that movement, he says, hey, I've gotten to a point where I don't ever sin again. I'd say, can we ask your wife a couple questions? <laughs> See how that's going. Now, the holiness view of sanctification at the bottom of the page is very much like it. Wesleyan and holiness are from the same sister, uh, and they, they basically have the same root, but there's a little slight difference if you're from the holiness view. That is, you're an unbeliever, you become justified, you go into defeating struggle with sin, and then you get a complete surrender and eradication of the sin nature. But then, you got the double whammy, slammy package. Man, you're in that drive-thru and they're asking you, do you want fries with that? You're like, nope. I want to supersize them. Okay? That's what the holiness view is. Yeah, you had that surrender. Yeah, you're getting that sin nature is getting rid of. But in this view, you also get the baptism of the Holy Spirit at that stage of your Christian life. You see where it is? You didn't get it on the day you got saved. You get it longer in. That's the holiness view. All right, next page. The Pentecostal view of sanctification. You're an unbeliever. You're saved by grace through faith. Then you have a defeating struggle with sin. That's when you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You get the kabammy kawami. Now, we're not talking about here how... Every, every particular Pentecostal movement has a little bit different nuance on that. Uh, it's nuanced with speaking in tongues or going through an ecstatic experience or giving more money to the church. Just kidding. And, um, but there's an experience of an event where you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and then that old man begins to get out of the way and you have a spirit-filled life. But there's still a struggle in Pentecostalism between the flesh and the spirit. They don't believe you can get perfect in this life. The crisis dedication view of sanctification. You're an unbeliever, you come to faith in Christ, but then you're just a carnal Christian. Like most of us, right? And then there's a dedication of life to God. You discover that Romans 12 exists. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. And at that point, you dedicate yourself, sort of back to the other dedication theory, and then you move up the ladder, and from that dedicated point, you begin living outside of the old man, spirit-filled and struggling between the new and the old. And then finally, you're like, these are a lot alike. Yes, yes, they all sell hamburgers. And then finally, the reformed view of, just, of sanctification. Oh! God's approved method. Some of you were up kind of late last night. I just noticed. Oh! You're like... You're like, I'm going to lose my religion. R.E.M., right. Now, we all know that R.E.M.'s song, Losing my Re- and when they say, I'm losing my religion, does not mean losing their faith in a religion. We all know that, right? Yeah. Losing my religion is a southern, what's the word? Phrase. phrase. A southern phrase that means, 
you're pushing me to the edge. I'm about to lose my religion on you. That means I'm going to get angry or I'm going to get, I'm, I'm going to cuss or do something bad. It does not mean that they were talking about becoming atheists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going to lose my religion. Okay, so reform view is you're an unbeliever, you've been justified by faith, but then it looks like some kind of ride at Six Flags. Yeah, all the way up. Though. Right? All the way up. Or, man, you just, this doesn't look fun. <laughs> but you become more and more like Christ, and there is no formula. I think what the reform view is saying, there's no formula or there's no one point in which when you get there, you're for sure going to go up. But it's a struggle, but that struggle continues up and that the Spirit works in you to struggle against the old man. You're like, I don't like any of these views. I want the instantaneous waka waka view. Person with your hand up whose name I do not know. Yes, ma'am. That's right. We are, that's right. That's right. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, right, under the Reformed view is that it happens instantaneously as part of the package of justification and it happens at your conversion. That's right. That's right. Okay. Quick enough. Oh, we got a baby visiting today. Lawrence and Tamika, we are so stoked that you're here. No. No. Just remember, they can become perfect and never sin again if you just. So glad you're here. So wonderful. All right. Page nine. Dave, this is a lot of stuff. Yes, it is. I hope you guys are out there praying for me about preaching later. Um, because I'm still not sure what I'm going to preach on. Um, I'm, I'm working it through. Okay, but I'm going to tell a story on Dave. Oh, good. Oh, by the way, if you're visiting today, that's my wife. And if you're, if you're not visiting today, that's still my wife. So. so for real, this happened when we were on a mission trip. Dave was supposed to preach, and he was young. And I was young as well. Mm-hmm. And he leaned over while we were singing, and he said, I'm going to change my sermon. <laughs> and it didn't get any better after <laughs> that is so true that was the worst the, the other time I was a senior pastor and uh, I did only one time my whole Christian experience I know other pastors have done this and you're going to be like what but I was sitting out there and I was like I have no idea what to preach on today now, you know, we, we, we actually prepare. The real pastors prepare, right? We spend hours, hours doing this, right? But that week had been hard. I couldn't figure out what it was. I couldn't figure out what text I wanted to land in. I wasn't in a series where I knew what the next thing was. And I was sitting in the front row, and I had no message. And I was like, okay, Lord, uh, I'm about to preach, actually, in this morning about faith. This was presumption. And I was like, Lord, I don't know. I, I, I can't get it there. And I went up. And I turned my Bible open, and I just started preaching. And I'll tell you, a couple people came up and said, that might have been the best sermon you ever heard. I was like, there is no reason to prepare. What, what, what passage did you land on? It was Job chapter 1. I just happened to be in Job chapter 1, and I was like, let's, let's look at the text. That's not what I did today, by the way. Okay. <laughs> notes. Okay, page 9. I just want to conclude some matters. 
let you out a little early because of my own benefit of being able to transition to the next, next period. All right, page nine are just some thoughts on sanctification that I would also say we're going to come into in chapter six, seven, and eight. Number one, a reminder, sanctification is both positional and progressive. Number two, we are commanded to be sanctified. <laughs> Number three, we will never be completely sanctified in this life. Number four, sanctification is a synergistic process in which we are to cooperate with God, Philippians 2. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Work it out, live out the Christian life while he's working within. Number five, we will always have to fight against the flesh until we die. Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, etc. And these are warring against the Spirit, as we know. Romans 6. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. It is possible to let sin reign in your mortal body as a Christian. Romans 13. Let us behave properly as a day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. It's a war. Number six. Sin is not a necessity for the Christian since believers are no longer slaves of sin, but have been set free from through redemption. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified with the flesh and its passions and desires. Again, and with preparation for next week, uh, when we actually dig in the text, what we're going to look at and see is that we no longer have to sin. So when they talk about sinless perfectionism, they're in the right route. And it should be that we sin less as we go along. It should be. I mean, I sinned back in, what, 2008? (laughs) We know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Freed from what? Not freed from sinning, but freed from sin as being your master. And we're going to talk about that, the old man, the Adam within. Number seven, the mortification of the flesh involves a dedication of your life to God and a continued reliance on the Holy Spirit. How is that different from Christ's dedication? We will talk about that in Romans 6. Number eight, orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. What does that mean? You have to believe something before you can act in the right way. That's why Paul waits till chapter 12 before he says, therefore, now start doing this stuff. Number nine, our motivation for sanctification is not the law, but love. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Not the law, but by the mercies of God. And number ten, our power for sanctification is not the law, but the Holy Spirit. That is a quick overview of the topics we're going to be looking at in Romans 6, 7, and 8. I never let you out this early, so just be thanking the Lord. And let me pray for us as we depart.